This is Guitar Talk. To me, it just seems like there are endless possibilities. One of the things I like to find out, you know, how people got influenced in the play and the guitar, because stories are so unique. The trick is not to feel pressured to conform. If you know anything about Joel, he's been around the block. He's probably one of the most sought-after guitar players. How would you create that song? How would you turn that song into your song? There's not a guitar player on this planet that I personally don't follow closer. It's it's not something that you see too often. I only know a few players that do it. Now, from the home of the blues, Chicago, Illinois, welcome to Guitar Talk with your host, Jimmy Warren. All right, welcome to Guitar Talk, everybody. I am Jimmy Warren, and you are with me on a Sunday where we've got two shows in a row. You are in the second episode and we are so glad that you have joined us. I tell you what, it's going to be a great episode. Before I get into anything, I just want to let you know that starting next Wednesday, the 17th, which, by the way, Kurt Fletcher will be with me that day. Yeah, Kurt Fletcher. <laughs> uh, starting that day, Guitar Talk will only be on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Central Time. Now, from time to time, we might throw out an exclusive or a special episode on a Friday or a Sunday, but for the most part, it's all going to be just on Wednesday. We're going to one show a week, not because of uh, too small of an audience. It's the exact opposite, really. Um, we've launched Guitar Talk TV on our website, and now, you know, I have a bunch of video content as well to participate in. And so, um, you know, in order to make uh, the highest quality shows that we possibly can, you know, we don't want to slough on any of it. Uh, we want to be able to provide good video content as well as an amazing podcast. And so, therefore, we're just going to slim down to one so that I don't have to grow two more arms and another head. Because <laughs> it's getting hard to keep up with everything. So enjoy this double episode here on this Friday. I mean, that makes for, you know, because I do a show on Mountain City Rock Radio in Montreal on Saturdays, a two-hour show that's also rebroadcast on Monday nights. And so, therefore... With the two on Friday, I mean, with uh, the Mountain City Rock, the one on Wednesday, and one on Sunday, and then doing all the video content, it's getting hard to keep up. So, uh, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to die quite, quite yet. I don't want to keel over, even though this would be a cool way to go. I don't want to keel over yet. So, uh, so starting next week, so you can just go to Guitar Talk Official. Com, and you can find out everything that you need to know. You can watch all the videos, all of our video series, and listen to uh, all the podcasts and, you know, know where to go to tune in to Mountain City Rock on Saturdays and Mondays as well. The thing that's cool about that uh, two hours is that it gives me the opportunity to play music as well. So I intertwine the, uh, you know, the artist's, interview with their music most of the time those uh, interviews are edited more so they're not complete full uh, unedited uh, interviews like sometimes I leave on the podcast sometimes I just put it all on there you know what I mean if there was a pause if there was some chit chat about something you know in sequential you know hey it's a conversation so there we go but anyway 
Now, in this hour or in this time, we have Michael Tash, who is the lead guitarist for Washington, D.C.'s premier blues band called Bad Influence. Now, uh, he's endorsed by Epiphone Guitars, GH Strings, Quilter Amps, Seymour Duncan Pickups, uh, Stage Clicks, uh, Wireless, PV Electronics, Electro Voice Products, Ethos Custom Leathers, Oh, my God. Pedal Snake Cable Systems, Gator Cases, he is endorsed by them all because he's a really good player. You know, and these companies recognize that. So, uh, you know, Washington, D.C. is a much better place just because this guy's there providing some awesome guitar music. And so you're going to enjoy this. And hopefully you're being introduced to somebody that you need to know. So uh, so sit back, put your feet up, you know my saying, get a nice beverage, you know, and enjoy this conversation with my friend and Washington, D.C. badass Michael Tash. Usually I'm upstairs, but this is a cooler background. Oh, heck, it, wait, it's got a pig nose. Of course. You got the pig nose. Man. You play through it? Not in, uh, no, not in a very long time. It still works, though. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know there's been a lot of great albums that have been recorded on one of those things. I think it's a, I think I got it when I was in high school. Really? I you think were so. the guy you strapped it on your belt and walked around campus and town? And... I, I was not that cool. <laughs> all right, all right, okay. What else you got back there? Is those your albums from Bad Influence? Those are, yep. Yeah. How many albums have you guys put out? Um, one, two, five. Five. Okay. I can only see four. I could tell that it went on, so I didn't want to. Well, there's, there's, uh, there's one on this end that you can't see that was actually a, that was a lesson learned. That was the lesson that taught me own my own record company. Right. Because right. we, we recorded that in... 1991 to somewhere around there. And I think I've, I've gotten about $1,100 in sales, $1,100 period. Yeah. Well, you're lucky you got that. You know, there's a lot of people that, you know, I, I can recall my first label was in Nashville and uh, I don't, I don't think I ever got squat out of any of that, to be honest with you. I think it ended up, I think it ended up costing me because I remember going <laughs> It's, I remember going to Dallas, Texas to meet with a, an agent and they wanted me to put together this digital promo kit, but I had to pay for it, you know, and, you know, back then, you know, what do you know, you know? Right. So, well, the, the crazy part with that one, it's an audiophile label. It's yeah. a label called Maple Shade Records. Uh, and the guy who did it, who, who produced it and whose label it was, he makes this incredibly high end stereo equipment you know, like $600 a foot for speaker cable. And wow. and they use one of the songs on there, at least they used to, for one of those loudest car contests, loudest car audio. <laughs> I know, pretty pretty wild. Yeah, claim to fame. So, there you go. There you go. So, okay, let, let's go back and let's talk about you, uh, you know, how, how you got started. And uh, I don't want to go too far back in that, but, you know, what what was it that, that inspired you in the very beginning to even decide to want to pick up the guitar and play? Uh, well, two factors. One, I, I sucked in sports. Okay. Two, 
it was uh, ever since I was a kid, ever since I remember, it's all I ever wanted to do. Yeah. Was, Why? Was guitar. Why did you want to play, though? Uh, something about the guitar. It just drew me to it. And it was just I remember as a kid, um, I had a cousin who had a Fender Telecaster that wouldn't let me touch it because it was a Fender Telecaster and I was a little kid. And all I wanted to do was just strum on it. And, you know, I, I remember even younger than that, one of the neighbors had this piece of crap electric, no name thing. And I would just sit there and just, just strum it, not knowing how to do anything. And it was just, I loved it. Yeah. It was just, it was just all I ever wanted to do. And then my grandparents got me in a cheap acoustic guitar when I was about 12 years old. And I got an electric when I was 13 and started taking lessons. And just, it's like I said, all I wanted to do. And the crazy part about it is, you know, I taught lessons for a while and I would teach these kids that would come in and I'd show them something. And then five minutes later, they could play it better than I could. <laughs> and I, I was not one of those kind of kids. It like, it didn't come easy for me. Yeah. Um, it was really hard. I remember um, one of my guitar teachers, I remember basically celebrating cause I could do something with my pinky and it was just, you know, it was like life changing. And, and I've told kids before, I remember the stories is like, you know, you're trying to do bar chords and you know, you can't do it and it hurts. And, and all of a sudden that one day you do it and then you forget all about that, other period when you couldn't do it yeah 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 it's uh, so it sounds to me now correct me if i'm wrong but it sounds to me from what you just told me that there wasn't somebody around you or some musical influence it was just the fact that the guitar looked like a cool thing well that and the other part was i wanted to be in kiss Ah well <laughs> yeah. That was 19, 1975, 76. I was 11. That was my, I went to see Kiss. I remember as a kid, even younger, jumping up and down on my bed with a tennis racket. And um, just funny, a side story at the NAMM show a couple of years ago, um, Tommy Thayer was talking to Jim Rosenberg, who was the president of Epiphone that time. And I went up and I stood right between them. And I said, Jim, I'm sorry. You know, I normally wouldn't interrupt you, but I got to say, you know, Tommy, you have the job. You know, I always wanted that job. Yeah. And he just laughed. And uh, I bet he that was, was kind of it. It was like I saw, you know, the, I remember the Kiss Alive album and just that picture when you opened it up. And I was like, this is cool as hell. Yeah. I want, I want to do that. Now, was it, isn't the backstory to that album, since you're a Kiss person, and I'm not a huge, I, I, I will admit I had uh, breakfast one time with Paul Stanley. Cool. Which was which was a surprise. A friend of mine who's a, a, a well-known photographer, music photographer, set it up as kind of like a, you know, I don't know, it was kind of like a cool thing for me, I guess. But uh, that live album, wasn't that live album uh, when they recorded it they were playing a lot of empty places at that time. I mean, wasn't that, you know, kind of at the beginning of their career? It was kind of at the beginning, and that's what really, from what I understand, and I'm, I'm a KISS fan, but not to that level. I mean, it was more the show. But from what I understand about that one, too, there were a lot of stuff that was overdubbed and added later. Right. And But I know that it was just for, for an incredible amount of people my age, that and Kiss Alive too are, are just the reasons why a lot of us play the guitar. Yeah, I, I think what they said was 
that they were playing all these places and there wasn't anybody there because nobody knew who they were and, mm-hmm. you know, all that kind of stuff. And so they got the idea to do a live album. They recorded pretty much everywhere they went and they had to add in audience at times. And I, I believe it for that first one. Yeah. Yeah. For the first one they did. And, that, and then once people heard it as a live album, they were like, oh, you know, mm-hmm. there you go. So, so kiss was, kiss was it, man. That was kind of what made me want to do it. And then I played, you know, and I was, you know, in high school, junior high school, I was always, you know, playing the guitar. And at that, that age, it's very weird and, and it's kind of negative because you think of it as a competition and it's, I, I remember those days of like, you know, who, who's the best and who has the best guitar or, you know, you're not good. I, I was the guy, I had a Fender Mustang. I didn't have a Strat. Yeah. And, and it was just like a, a status level at, at certain points as well. Right. But I was, you know, back then I was playing, you know, I was like rock. I, I say heavy metal, but it was back, you know, it was Iron Maiden, Judas Priest, Black Sabbath, right. um, coupled with Leonard Skinner, Molly Hatchet, yeah. and, and, you know, Southern rock stuff and kind of mixed that around. Well, see, it sounded like we could have been hanging out at that time because I, it's parallels, man. I was, I was into the same thing at the same time. And, and I had short hair. Yeah. <laughs> Well, see, back then I had hair. <laughs> so, so you know, so you were into all this, this, uh, this, you know, rock, all this really cool music. So you got a lot of great influences there. When did the when did the blues start to creep in? So, so two things happened. Um, I was managing a video store, and you know, for people who are younger who watch this, that that's where you rent. VCRs and VHS tapes and movies and stuff. And it was slow during the day. And I used to play my guitar. I was the only person in the store and I just sit behind the counter playing my guitar. And this guy came in and he said, I, you know, I have a band. You ought to come out and see my guitar player. And it was a blues band. And um, prior to that, I had had a little bit of blues experience and um the main one was an album called Showdown with Robert Cray, Albert Collins, and Johnny Copeland. Right. And it was all around that time, the, the mid to late 80s. So the guitar player was a guy named Steve Jacobs. And the band was called Tough Luck. And they were, they were a blues band. But the singer was a guy, his name was Mark Hurwitz, but he went by Lips Lackowitz. <laughs> and he taught me, he put on a show. It was like part comedy act but these guys were serious into the blues and they ended up Mark knew Carrie Bell really well. And they were Carrie Bell's road band for, for years. So these were like legit blues guys. Yeah. And, and I saw them and I, I got to know Steve and I was like, wow, that's what I want to do. So I sold my Charvel guitars. I sold my Washburn a five, um, <laughs> And I bought a 1960 Strat. Yeah. And this is back in 1989. And I learned, I learned from watching Steve. Steve had played in a band called Powerhouse with another DC area guitar player, a guy named Tom Principato. And um, I didn't know what I didn't know. And that's kind of what he taught me. It was like, I had heard, you know, like most people at that time, I'd heard Eric Clapton. Um, I had heard, you know, Stevie Ray Vaughan. 
and a lot of this other stuff, I'd never heard of Peter Green. Right. And, and Steve, Steve basically gave me these cassettes and he's like, you need to listen to this. If you want to play the blues, you need to listen to it. And, and I kind of equate it now, you know, if you want to learn how to speak Spanish, you have to listen to it. So you know what it's supposed to sound like. Yeah. And, and so Steve turned me on to Peter Green, to Freddie King and to the older BB King, you know, pre thrill is gone. And I was just like blown away and, and learned to, you know, play a lot less notes and just, just to the feel of it. And, and that, that was, like I said, that's the late eighties and that's, that's kind of all I did. And the band kind of evolved around from that, the same thing. I worked at a video store, played my guitar and this guy comes in and he was from the DC area, but he lived in Key West for a long time. And he was friends with Jimmy Buffett and he wanted me to teach him how to play acoustic guitar so he could play some Jimmy Buffett songs when he went back to Key West to see him and ended up wanting to, I introduced him to Steve and to the band and he started playing bass and we formed Bad Influence about six months later. That'd be darn. And the, the crazy part, you know, you've played in bands and everybody else has the hardest part at that time we had six people in the band. The hardest part is getting everybody to agree on a band name. Yeah. So we said, okay, we're going to pull out a record from a box of records that we had. And whatever was on that record, that was going to be the name or something from it. We pull it out. And what is it? Robert Cray, Bad Influence. Uh, and what what's really cool about it, you know, in retrospect is, like I said, my first blues, real blues album that I really, you know, got me playing it more was that Showdown album. And it introduced me to other stuff, but I was a huge Robert Cray fan and, you know, that was a big influence on my playing. And I played a Strat for almost 20 years before I started playing Epiphones. And it's just, it's just funny now, you know, when I look back on all this stuff and it just kind of steamrolled and grew. Mm -hmm. So, so what made you make the leap though, from, from the Fender to the Epiphone? So it's funny. I, I bought the, the 1960 Strat in 1989 and I played it every gig and somehow I don't even remember the circumstances around it, but I bought an Epiphone um, 56 gold top reissue on eBay. And it, I'd never owned a Gibson before. I had never really owned any humbucking pickup guitars for like 20 years, really. And this guitar, even though it had P90s, this guitar was killer. It sounded great. It played great. It looked great. So I wrote a letter. I didn't even email. I wrote a letter to Epiphone, um, totally blind to customer relations or to artist relations at that time. At that time, I had gotten a couple, um, I had an endorsement deal on, with strings and some other things. So I kind of knew how it worked. And I just sent him a letter and I wrote that I bought this guitar on eBay. I've been playing a vintage Strat for 20 years. This guitar is amazing. I can't believe the sound and the quality for, I think I paid like 250 or something for it back then. And, you know, I, I figured nothing would ever happen. You know, it was just blind. So like six or eight months later, I got an email from the artist relations in at Epiphone saying, are you still interested in an endorsement deal? 
And I was like, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so I've been playing Epiphones ever since 2008. Yeah. And, and it's crazy because the, the, the thing I love about it is if you come out and see me play, or if you have kids who come out and see and like the sound and like what I'm doing, you can buy my rig, everything that I have, guitar, amp, cables, wireless, everything for under $1,500, which yeah. is pretty amazing in the scheme of things. Yeah. And, and I've been playing Epiphone. I played the gold top for a while and I realized um, just as I ordered another Epiphone about a month ago that I have about a three year cycle that I play the, the same guitar for about three years. Yeah. And I played, I played Les Pauls for a really long time and I played that gold top and then Epiphone. Um, I don't know if you're familiar. They had a line called the elitist mm -hmm. and they were, they were pretty high dollar guitars. And I was at the summer Nam show years ago and I was talking to Jim Rosenberg again, who's the president. And I said, I want a, an Epiphone elitist Les Paul. And he's like, no, you want this slash Les Paul. We just came out with it. This is the guitar you want. And I said, get the hell out of here. I play blues. I don't, I don't want a slash Les Paul. I want this elitist. You know, can you find me one? He's like, you want the slash Les Paul. There might've been some drinking involved. We were, it was after hours. So, so about two or three weeks later, this slash Les Paul shows up at my door. Yeah. And that guitar, it's it's an Epiphone Les Paul. It's slash specs. It has Seymour Duncan Alnico pickups in it. And that guitar is like perfect. Yeah. And I played that guitar for about three years. And then Epiphone said to me, if you're going to play, you know, you need to play the newer model because that guitar is a limited edition and you people can't buy it anymore. So I got this Les Paul plus top pro, which is basically a $500 guitar center, you know, off the shelf guitar. Right. Um, I do put the same Seymour Duncan slash Alnico pickups in all the Les Pauls. And that guitar was unbelievable. And mm -hmm. I played that one for about three years and then had a little incident where I have two herniated discs in my neck because mm -hmm. I'm over 50 and I've been playing a Les Paul for like 12 years. So I called up my rep and I said, what, what is the lightest guitar that you guys have? And that's a casino. Mm -hmm. So they sent me a casino and that kind of revolutionized everything and really changed the way I play. Because when you play a Les Paul, even, and I, I play, I plug right into the amp. I don't use any pedals and I don't really use any heavy overdrive. So when you play a Les Paul, even through a clean amp, it distorts and you can get away with stuff. When you switch over and you play a casino, which is a hundred percent hollow, there's no hiding. It's like playing an acoustic guitar. Yeah. And, and I learned that really quick. I'm like, Whoa, this doesn't work anymore. And had to kind of redo the way I play a little bit and, and try to get a bit more accurate. If you know what I mean? Yeah. And, um, I've been playing the less the, the uh, casino now it's been a, a, just a little over three years mm. and I, I have two of those. And then I have a side band called new blue soul. And that band is more bad influence is pretty traditional. It's just a four piece guitar, bass, drums, harp, and two vocals. And it's pretty traditional blues. Although most of what we do is original new blue soul is like keyboard oriented and it's, 
the the guy who leads that band uh, took lessons from Charles Brown. Um, mm-hmm. Used to play with um, W. C. Clark, and and was on the road with some of these guys. So it's a different, very different style. A lot of New Orleans stuff in there. A lot of jazzier stuff, yeah. and the casino doesn't quite work in that band. So I play a blues hawk, oh, okay. that, which um, a friend of mine, I only know one other person who plays a blues hawk is Carolyn Wonderland. And she plays it with John Mayall because the same reason it, it's, I needed more of a stratier kind of sound with this band, but you know, Epiphone frowns on that. Yeah. So, so the the blues hawk with the two single coil pickups and that very tone, it gets some really cool sounds and it's light. Yeah. So I yeah. don't have the issues. So you find yourself though when you go from you know, make and model, you know, from from a strat to a Les Paul to a casino and that do you find yourself, you know, most people do you know, approaching the guitar differently because I don't know, there's something about the feel of the guitar, you know, the way the guitar interacts with, you know, us as musicians and that it's like you, you, you uh, approach a Strat completely different than you do a Les Paul or, or something, you know, 335 or an Explorer or whatever, you know? Absolutely. I, um, I, I had a Telecaster that I played for a while and yeah. I remember somebody saying to me, when you play a Telecaster, you know, you either play a guitar or you play a Telecaster. And I remember the analogy from riding motorcycles. It's like you either have a motorcycle or you have a Harley. Yeah. And and playing when you play a Tele, you get used to it and you learn. You can make it sound like a Strat, a Les Paul, a jazz box, whatever. Um, the Strats are, are kind of hard to get a good sound out of at first. It takes, it takes some doing where I think a Les Paul, it's a little bit easier, but you know, years of playing the Les Paul, I could get Strat-like sounds. I could get Telly, you know, those kind of sounds. And going to the casino, it was it was very different. The biggest change I had when I went from the Strat to the Les Paul was I had played 11s on the Les, on the Strats. And for me, 11s don't work right on a Les Paul. They don't they don't sound right and they don't feel right. So I had I went down to 10s and the tension difference from 11s on a Strat to 10s on a Les Paul, you know, I would be bending up, you know, half step or step harder, higher than, than needed. So that took a little bit of getting used to. Yeah. And, and the same switching from the Les Paul to the casino. um, The neck is different, very, very different. And, you know, you really only have about the 14th fret or so, you know, you can play pretty pretty easily the high octave of F. Once you get higher than F, you know, to G on that casino, it's a lot of body there. Yeah. So you have to play differently. Yeah. Now, and then the, the Blues Hawk's a whole different animal because that's a shorter scale. Yeah. And I feel like I'm playing, you know, like a Van Halen guitar or something when I play oh, that thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, you know, one of the things you said a minute ago was that you know anybody could go out and they could they could purchase your entire rig for under fifteen hundred bucks, which I think is is really cool. You know, I'm the kind of guy that I I like to buy you know pieces and parts, and you know I I'm not afraid of Mexican made or Korean made or whatever because you know in the right hands and with the right equip you know with the right electronics or 
or you know stuff attached to it uh i mean it works well so but the epiphone in my opinion is is a guitar that doesn't get nowhere near the uh, attention that it should in comparison to gibson because I, this is a true story i've got a 1967 es335 and i've got a 2010 sheridan 2 right the one i'd rather play is the 2010 sheridan 2 I, I have a similar story. I was in Chicago and they had a Gibson 56 gold top. Um, I don't remember the the actual model, but it's the custom shop one that it's like a five or $6,000 guitar. Yeah. And they had it mismarked for like $1,100. Hmm. And so I bought it and I brought it home and I, I brought the Gibson and the Epiphone to the gig and I sold the Gibson about two weeks later. Yeah. Because it just, I just, I didn't like it. I do own one. I have a bunch of Epiphones. Um, the coolest probably I have a, a ES 295. That's a really cool guitar, but I have a, a Gibson. The only Gibson that I own is a Gibson Grace Potter flying V. Oh, really? And I love that guitar. And yeah. someone pointed out, I didn't realize it when I bought it. It's slightly shorter, slightly smaller than a standard Flying V. And the thing plays great. It's not neck heavy at all. And it sounds more like a Les Paul than it does a Flying V. I'll be darned. I've never played one, so I, I wouldn't. But I, I, I agree with you. I mean, it's, it's funny, you know, going back to what I had said earlier, like the high school days and younger, you know, younger people, you think if it's not, and even today, if it's not a Gibson, if it's not a Fender, a PRS, um, you know, one of these high brand, high visibility, higher dollar guitars, it's not any good. Yeah. And, you know, I'll put my, my guitars up against any Gibson, Paul Reed Smith. It, it's hard to say, you know, when you compare, you know, a casino to a Strat or a Les Paul to a Telecaster, it's like comparing a Phillips screwdriver to a straight blade screwdriver. Yeah. It, they're both guitars, but they're very, very different and they sound very different. Right. Yeah. But, but yeah. I agree with you, man, quality wise, it's amazing. Yeah. I, I broke down in, uh, in, bought my, well, it wasn't my first Ibanez, but I would say it was my first Ibanez. <laughs> uh, I ended up buying a prestige, one of the Japanese higher end, you know, for, for Ibanez because, and I'd been a Strat and Tele player pretty much my whole life, even though I, you know, got a ton of guitars. Uh, those are the two that I play the most, always have, you know, right. I think, I think personally, I think the Tele is probably one of the most all around, you know, guitars there is, but anyway, I bought this Ibanez and I absolutely loved it. And it plays like a dream, and I, I and I couldn't see myself buying anything else, and so I wanted another Simahala body guitar, you know, thin line. And so for the first time, which I would never do before, I, I looked at Ibanez, but I looked at um, not one of their higher end, you know, uh, models, some mid middle road, just you know, mm -hmm. figure out. But the the story is, is that I got it. I got a. It was an Art Core Expressionist um like a double cutaway you know like 335 kind of thing right. and i gotta tell you man i was shy 700 bucks with a case you know i was shocked you know how well it played in it ended up having the 
the the electronics that their higher end Ibanez has the ones like you know that's that Joe uh, George Benson and and um, and John Schofield and those guys play and stuff. But uh, my point is is that there are so many models out there right now that you can get that are in that price range of you know five hundred to seven hundred dollars that are really really good guitars. Yeah, I, yeah. my I had an Ibanez years ago. And it's one, you know, everybody has those stories. We're sorry that we got, you know, got rid of it. Yeah. And this was an Ibanez. It was called a Roadstar or something. Yeah. The Strat one. It was a Strat one. Yeah. And, you know, it was probably new, maybe $300. Yeah. Maybe. And that guitar, I mean, the pickups weren't that great. But, I mean, this was a long time ago. I probably didn't really know better. But the the body and the neck, it was amazing. That thing played great. And I ruined it because I took it to a repair guy. And this was back in the, in the high gain, um, active pickup years. And I said, I want it to sound like, um, and I can't even remember the, I was trying to remember the guy, the song. I can't remember. It was a really clean strap sound back in the early 80s. And the guy put in those, um, EMG single coil pickups. Oh, the SAs or the SLs, yeah. Something like that with the that were active. And right. I basically threw the guitar in the trash after that. Oh wow. Uh, it, it was just I I ruined it. Yeah. It, well I actually I actually like the I was endorsed by EMG for a number of years. I actually like the SAs and that, but I completely understand because if you're going for that traditional, really clean, clear you know, Strat thing, that Strat tone, man, you're not going to get that with EMGs. Right. And, and now, <laughs> you know, now it. I know, and don't go I, back I, to that guy. Well, you know, you know, what's funny is you don't realize it takes a lot of years to learn that, you know, it's your hands and your, your, your heart and soul that make the sound. It doesn't matter the instrument. Yeah. And, and I, you know, none of us know that when we're young and you're all trying these different guitars and, you know, I think about it now and I remember, you know, watching TV and seeing Roy Clark on The Odd Couple and B.B. King on The Cosby Show and all these great guitar players on an acoustic guitar sounding like B.B. King or sounding like Roy Clark. And I'm like, it, it's just them. It's not. Yeah, it's not the guitar. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, when it comes to like the EMG thing, you can, you know, just back off the volume. You right. know, you monkey with the tone and back off the volume and, you know, you can get a, you can get a good sound, you know, regardless, but yeah, I mean, it's crazy. So what kind of amp, I'm, I'm guessing since you're straight blues, you know, your chances are you're using a, oh, let me guess, Fender amp. Are, are you sitting down? <laughs> yeah. I'm so, sitting down. so, so I've been playing a quilter solid state amp I got two since, of them. since they came out. Yeah, yeah. You're you're in Chicago, right? I am. Outside. You know Felix um Felix Reyes? No. He's got a studio called House of Tone. No. So so I don't know now it's probably I think it's about 2010, 2011. There's a guy, a friend of mine named Matt Hill was playing was playing a quilter amp and then I saw Felix had one and then Tom Holland. Tom Holland, yeah, I know Tom plays them. And so I, I reached out to Quilter and ordered one. And it's a funny story because as you know, they're, they sound incredible, but there's a, there's a bit of a learning curve to it. Mm -hmm. And 
So I got one and my first gigs, I had three in a row. The first one we were opening for room full of blues in a 500 seat or 400 seat room in DC. The next night we were playing a club in Philly called the twisted tail, which is about, I don't know, 75 feet wide and 300, 400 feet long. Yeah. And the third gig was a casino in Connecticut that was about a 500 seat room, but the ceilings were probably, you know, 80 to a hundred feet high. Yeah. So three very, very different rooms. And I got the quilter about three days before those gigs. So it was, it was tough getting the tone dialed in, but I play, I play a micro pro two, which is the eight inch combo. Um, I don't use any pedals. I plug direct in. And I primarily, I use the gain channel with just a little bit of gain enough that when I hit it hard, it overdrives it. But you were right before that I used a, uh, a um, Fender pro junior. Okay. With a, that's a, if I remember right, that's a 10 inch speaker. Yeah. And I used a, before that, a blues junior. Um, Before that I had an amp, a guy named Michael Clark makes, and it was a, Re, remake of a 50s like 53 54 something like that tweed deluxe yeah and um i had i was a guy i'd be like there's no way i would play through a solid state amp yeah you know, i was that guy and then i heard the quilters and i like the 19 pounds when i lift it up yeah and it it amazes me still um because they're they're out there and they've been around now for quite some time but not a lot of people know them yeah and i'll be playing gigs and someone will come up and they're like well what what are you playing through and i'll point to this little tiny amp and they're like no really what are you playing through you know what pedal or whatever makes it sound like that and i'm just i'm just amazed i can't believe how good that amp sounds and how flexible it is and it is the only amp I've ever owned that our bass player asked me to turn down sometimes. <laughs> it's, it's an eight inch speaker. It's yeah. just, it's just, it's just unbelievable. I'll be darned. You know, it was Mike Zito that uh, convinced me to get one. Um, I, I got two of them. I, I've got the, well, I got the tone block 202 and the pro block 200. Okay. And uh, I, I originally got the pro block and it was just a backup, you mm-hmm. know, I want, I wanted something. So if something happened to my head or something happened, you know, I had a, a backup in that. And, uh, and then I started using it for rehearsals and stuff like that. And then I used it in the studio and, uh, and then, I don't know, maybe about eight months ago, I bought the, the tone block, the, the newer one in that because of some of the features it had in order to record and, and all that. Right. Other stuff. But I'm going to tell you, I agree. I was shocked because I wasn't expecting much to be honest with you. I really wasn't. And uh, for, for me in that um, to, to run that, and I, I don't have a quilter uh, cabinet, you know, I have, I have other stuff, but to run that just clean with a little bit of reverb, I use a delay pedal to add a little bit more fullness, but just that alone, that clean tone, you can't, you can't beat it. You, you just can't beat it. I mean, I it's absolutely beat, beautiful. 
don't know if you can see up, you know, under the pig, under the pig nose, that's a one-on-one reverb. Yeah. I see one up there. Yeah. And I got that for, I got that as a backup and then I had a tone block and I ended up giving it to Albert Castilla because oh, it was, nice. it was, it wasn't for me, it wasn't really usable because yeah. combo, but the thing, the thing that is amazing about those amps is the combos, especially is how I haven't found a gig yet. That is not enough for. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I've used them. I've used it unmiked outside for venues. Um, I've used it for clubs. I've used it for huge stages where, you know, I'll run, I run the um, direct out into the board where, where sound guys all the time, you know, it, I'll go, I'll show them the line out. They're like, no, we don't, we don't use line out on guitar amps. It always sounds terrible. We hate it. And then I tell them, just try it. And then at the end of the set, they're like, where do you get this amp? <laughs> that, that's happened more than once. Yeah. And, and it's just the, the sheer ease of, you know, of just being able to use it. But the, the last CD that we did, the got what you need CD. Um, I used the quilter for every song, every track. Um, the only, the only amp other than the quilter that I used on that one, I have an old magnetone and that vibrato tremolo channel of the magnetone, nothing, nothing sounds like that. Yeah. And, you know, that amp is old. It, it looks like it was made out of an old TV chassis or something. It's plastic. Right. And that, that doesn't really go out of the house, except I have it on like one or two songs on every CD. I use that. Yeah. Yeah. But recording with the recording with the quilter was really surprising because um, the, the previous CD, I didn't use any of my amps. The, the studio that we recorded in had a bunch of vintage amps. And I think I used an old, um, I don't know the year, but a fifties um, it was a tweed deluxe and mm -hmm. You know, if I wanted it clean, I put the volume on like three. If I wanted it distorted, I put the volume on like six. And that was it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, those are great amps. Yeah, I, the, the quilter really took me. I've even ran a, uh, as, as a dual rig, you know, uh, with an ABY in that and ran both of them at the same time. And it, it does sound good. You were saying about the clean channel, the yeah. probably one of the best sounds that I've had is I have the micro pro head as well. And, and when the band travels, I usually, if I know there's going to be backline, I bring that and I'll just use the speakers off whatever they have. Well, that amp through a open back fender twin with the two twelves, that is, that is unbelievable. Yeah. Just the bass and everything. The weirdest combination I think I had we played at the house of blues in Vegas once and I had my head and they gave me a closed back Marshall cabinet. Yeah. And I couldn't get the sound I wanted quite, you know, cause it's, even though the combo has a closed back for the eight inch, the four twelves and a Marshall, that's, it was a very dark sound. Yeah. But it was loud as hell. I mean, I could not believe how loud that amp can be. I actually, I actually, I'll show you. I think you can see it. Maybe I tilt it down. Oh, yeah. I got the two Marshall cabinets there. Those are the 212s, uh, 212 slant cabs that they came out with the, the new uh, SLV plexi head that they came out with, uh, Marshall in that. And I switched the speakers. I put greenbacks 
in both of them and run that quilter through that marshal. And once again, the cabinet itself, I mean, I can carry it with one hand. Right. And the other thing, I, the you just put it in a bag and throw it over your shoulder. You know what I mean? It doesn't, right. but it sounds oh, good. Yeah. Well, they, the, they, they don't sound solid state. No, they no, don't they, don't feel, yeah. they don't feel solid state yeah. either. Yeah. And, and that's the amazing part. And, you know, where, where we are in DC, we, we, um, because of the way the band is, we don't travel a whole lot. We we're lucky where, you know, we play a lot in the area and then we're home every night. Yeah. But we also get to open up for a lot of bands and there's been a lot of guitar players that we've, you know, we've played with that are, um, you know, one in particular friend of mine, I'm using my quilter. He's, he's lugging in his super reverb and then setting it up and then putting the plexiglass in front of it. Yeah. And it, it sounds great, but you know, it, carrying that thing and yeah, just the, the, you have to be careful with a vintage amp. I mean, my quilter, it it's in a, a carrying case with a strap and I literally like throw it over my shoulder, throw it in the van and I'm good. I don't have to really baby it. Like I do the tube amps. Right. Yeah. <laughs> does it, does it sound as good as a vintage super reverb? Um, it, it depends who's playing it, you yeah. know, maybe, maybe not, but it, it doesn't cost thousands like a vintage super reverb. Um, you know, I can carry it one handed. I don't have to worry about it. Yeah. And they do accept pedals really well. You know, yeah. so if you're a pedal player, you know, like I am, even though when it's just me and I'm just, you know, here in my, in my studio and I'm, and I'm just practicing or I'm playing along the tracks or whatever it is. That's all I use. I use the quilter to the Marshall completely clean with a delay on it, a little bit of delay. And that's, that's it because it's such a beautiful sound. doesn't matter what guitar I'm playing. It's a beautiful sound. Right. You right. know, and I'm not, I'm not a pedal guy. I was with, when I was using the, the fender amps because they didn't, the pro, the pro junior, it's just volume and tone. Yeah. So, so I had a reverb pedal, a tremolo pedal, a clean boost pedal. I think that was it. Oh, and I had a delay. Yeah. And when I went, when I switched to the quilter, you know, it has tremolo and reverb built in. So I don't, I don't use any pedals, but it is, I, I have, and it's amazing how transparent and how good it sounds. Yeah. And the, the, the reverb on that, you know, uh, I believe it's like a spring reverb, isn't it? It sounds like it. I, oh, absolutely. I, yeah, I believe it is modeled after that. It's, it's got a nice sound to it. Have but, you seen those, um, those spark amps? I've, I've seen them. Yeah. I, I don't own one, but I, but I've seen one. I haven't played through one. I, uh, that's my pandemic amp. Yeah, is it? Because, you know, be, I'm, I'm home a lot more than I used to be. So the quilter, even though my quilter is tiny, it's not right for the living room. Yeah. And and I have, I got one of those little spark amps for the living room. Um, it, It's nothing that I would ever take on a gig or anything like that. But it is fun to put the phone app on and, you know, I sound like Eddie Van Halen. Then I click a button. Then I sound like Metallica. Then I click <laughs> again. Then I sound like BB King. And right. just just to play around with those sounds, it's just fun. And it, it's a cool. The thing that I really like about it is, if you're a student, 
you know, what, what's so different in the world now? You know, when I was a kid and I wanted to learn how to play a song, I had to get it on the record player and then like play it over and over and move the needle and, or yeah. the cassette and, and figure it out. Now, you know, if I want to learn how to play, you know, a Guns N' Roses song, I go on YouTube and they're slash showing you how to play it. Yeah. And, and if you're a student, the amps like that spark, it's really cool because you may not know, you know, I started off wanting to play Kiss and I ended up playing blues. And if I had had something like that at the time, you know, I can get the Kiss sound or or whatever it is, that sound out of the amp. And as you know, when you get the right sound, it makes you want to play more. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I've heard a lot of I've heard a lot of good things about them, but I haven't I haven't ever played through one. And uh, I applaud you for being able to have an amp in the living room. Uh, <laughs> I can't do that. <laughs> I'm lucky to have the, you know, the, the space that I have, but I, I try to keep her upstairs. I got gotcha. you. You know what I mean? Because gotcha. how else can you say, Oh, I've had that forever. If, right. they, if they're not around. <laughs> I hear you. That's a completely different podcast right there. <laughs> so, so tell me, so tell me a little bit about your last release in the band, because we've talked about you and your guitar and that, but, uh, sure. you know, bad influence. I know you guys have been around on the East coast for a while. You've mentioned that you've opened up for a lot of people, you know, um, you know what? You know, so, how, so I formed the band in, in 1989 mm -hmm. and it's been the same. It started off. We had six people. We, we went through a couple personnel changes and the four of us now, we've been playing together since 1993. Um, bass player, drummer, and harmonica. It's uh, Roger Edsel is a harmonica player, plays slide guitar. Bob Millardi plays bass and sings, and David Thaler plays the drums. We, um, you know, we had a sax player, we had a second guitar player, and just things over the years evolved. So it's been the four of us now for probably... Wow, since probably about 2006, we've been a we've been a four piece. Um, the last the last record we did it was called "Got What You Need." We did it last year, came out April 2019, and it is mostly original stuff. Um, that one we did a couple covers, and we did most of the covers that we do are generally obscure covers that are they yeah. sound familiar, but they're not you know, it's not ones that you've heard before. Um, one of the covers that we did, which is really funny, we did Wee Wee Hours by Chuck Berry. And it came out and then I'm I'm driving around and I'm listening to XM radio and there's like four other people who released that song all around the same time frame. And it was like really funny. And we did, um, oh man, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on the Bo Diddley song. Um, but Jan of a Magnus just recorded it and put it out, you know, a couple months after. So it, maybe they're not so obscure. <laughs> you know, that's a good, uh, that's, that's a good, that's a good thing to do though. I mean, it's a good mindset. You know, I, I do that. I, you know, I record stuff that I recorded stuff by John Harrington of Steely Dan. And right. Different stuff. Yeah. You know, people dig it, but I, cause I don't know about you. I have a hard time. I mean, I, do you have an easy time writing songs? Me personally, not, I'm not the, I'm not the best songwriter. Yeah. Um, I, I shouldn't say it like that. The song, the songs that I've written, 
well, I'll back up. We have a couple songs. One of the, and one of the things that we do for some reason, when whether it's when I write or Roger or David, um, our songs seem to have or evolve to these hooks that are catchy and the kind of songs that you know when we play a gig, people are singing along the first time they hear it. I mean, we have one song called "Don't Forget Your Night Clothes." Um, we recorded that literally twenty plus years ago. Someone requests that every show we do. <laughs> Um, you know, I have a song called Looking Right at Me, but it, it's known as the Cougar song. That's another one, you know, and they all have these these kind of hooks. So right. I'm not I find it hard to write songs, but, um, you know, the ones the ones that I've written are, you know, they're the they're the OK ones. Roger, our harmonica player, writes the ones that are just they seem to be memorable, um, you know, dressing like you don't dress for me. Yeah. Stuff, you know, stuff like that. Don't forget your night clothes is a true story. He worked at a liquor store delivering liquor and they, they forgot to put a bottle for this, this one woman's order in. And she said, when you bring it back, don't forget your night clothes. <laughs> and there, there you go. There's the song. But um, so we try to, we try to write our, you know, as much of our own stuff as we can. Um, one of the things that we did on the last one, we did a, James Harmon cover and called my little girl. And I, I was, I sent it to him to check out. And as soon as I hit the sent button, send button, I'm like, Hmm, maybe I shouldn't do that. Cause yeah. you know, you just never know. And you know, he's not one to, he's not afraid to express his opinions. Yeah. So he, he wrote me back. He liked the song and thanked me for putting the, um, the Harry Fox link. So he got the royalties for it. <laughs> yeah. That's why you don't tell him that she did it. So, you know, it was, uh, but it, you know, we try to pick songs. We try to do our own arrangements of, we did um, a really crazy arrangement of I feel good by James Brown. Yeah. On, it's like a, a, a shuffle kind of thing. And um you know, people like it. So we'll keep doing it. Yeah. Well, you know, evidently you're doing something right. You've been around a long time. Yeah. We've, we've been around. It's, it's been really strange because, you know, we're in the Washington DC area and DC is, you know, again, they're locked down, no indoor dining. There's been no live performances for the most part since March. Um, Maryland has been the same except for outdoor performances and then Virginia they're they're open for you can have indoor performances but it's a limited number of people limited um, capacity so there's been a couple places that we've been playing there's a club in Virginia in Falls Church called JVs and they've been around same family 74 years wow and she's still doing live music like four, four or five days, nights a week. And, you know, I've been playing there a lot and just, just trying to keep it going, you know, trying to keep help her with her business, help us because once, once the, the coronavirus is kind of uh, kicked, so to speak, I, I don't know how, how things are going to start up again, because now you have everybody, at the same starting point. Yeah. And the people who were touring are, it's going to be kind of harder, I think, to get things started because 
I don't know how it's going to work with budgets. It's going to be really, it's going to be really scary. Plus, you know, there's a lot of venues that just aren't there anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the chances are, you know, I would think that the people that are, I don't want to say higher up the food chain, the people that are higher up the food chain are going to be the ones that are, Unless, you know, like what you say with the budgets, if budgets come in so bad that people can't afford, you know. Uh, I think the potential that the, the tough. good side, I think, though, I think there's a lot of people who are live music fans mm-hmm. who, because they've been home for six, eight, nine, ten months, they, they have a pile of money saved up. Yeah. So they haven't been out, you know, they haven't been out spending the money on these events. So hopefully, you know, hopefully it'll all meet up at a, at a acceptable level where the venues, you know, they're not starting off and what was a 10, $20 ticket now is a $40 ticket. Yeah. Yeah. That would, that would make it really hard, you know, for a lot of people in that, but I think they're talking, you know, a lot of people are looking at, you know, fall, I think is where people are reasonably positioned. And I know a lot of tours in that are re, have been rebooked for fall. And that some of the guys I'm talking to, like, like Lee Rittenauer, Satriani and guys like that, they've got tour dates, you know, for the fall and stuff, but nobody's doing anything really in the summer. There's only a few people that I know of that, that have stuff for the summer already. Right. Right. And, and, and so we're, I've got a couple dates in January, but, it's, it's literally the same place. And yeah. after that, I don't, I don't really have anything booked. It's kind of going day by day. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't had anything since November myself, you know, in Chicago, there isn't anything going on. There's, there's some, you know, smaller venues or venues that are on the outskirts of places or places that are saying, you know, piss on it. We're going to be open. Cause if we right. don't, if we don't be open then we, you know, we're going to be closed. <laughs> You know, so, uh, but for the most part, it's crazy. So probably probably the, one of the bigger disappointments with the beginning of this was we were booked um, in May, we were coming out to Chicago again and I had buddy guys and house of blues booked. Yeah. And that was just, you know, for, for us playing at buddy guys, we did that for the first time last year. Yeah. That that's huge because that's, you know, when you play blues, you, you know, and you play there and the place was packed and that's a big deal to us. You know, we're not, we're not selling out festivals. Right. 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 You know, I, I like buddies, you know, I, I really love the old one, man. The one that, oh, they yeah. did. Um, man, that was, that was the place, you know, that's where I, I learned to play and got all my first starts and stuff. Man, it's a great, it's a great place. Chicago is a great town. There are so many great venues not not even in the city, but in the suburbs around right. the city. so many great venues to play at, you know, and that. And so it's been it's been hard to see them all shut down for the most part because here, here too. Yeah. I mean, we, we had a we had a venue that was only open a little over a year, and it was a it was a uh, about 220 seat room, phenomenal sound great great vibe and um that was where we would play you know we did our cd release parties there um got to open for some great you know um carolyn wonderland taranzo cannon um 
room full, Vanessa, uh, Vanessa, man, the sax player. I'm drawing a blank on her last name, Collier. <laughs> it's early. Yeah. And, and, but it's a, it's a shame because that they closed down. And I mean, you know, that was one of those rooms where everything just sounded wonderful. Yeah. It's a shame. Some of the smaller mom and pop type places are just, you know, they're just struggling. They can't, they can't do it. You know, they're restaurants, but they can't do it on 25% capacity. Yeah. 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 That's why a lot of them, if they're having, you know, like around us, if there's anybody having any type of music, it's typically a guy with a guitar. Mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's all it is. And I know some guys that I know, uh, like even over in Europe and that that's what they've had to go to, you know, they're not playing with their bands no more. They're doing their own solo stuff. Great. I have a, I do an acoustic trio. Yeah. And, and sometimes a duo because of that. Yeah. And we'll see, you know, luckily for us, I mean, it's, it's almost, you know, it's almost the new year. Um, spring comes a little bit earlier here, you know, than it does in Chicago. So there will be, you know, the wineries and the outdoor restaurant type gigs coming back probably, you know, late March, April. Yeah. But, but it is, you know, I'm nervous because normally, you know, I was telling someone last night, normally this time of year, um, I'm in Florida between Christmas and New Year's and, and hanging out and jamming down there with some friends. I come back, then I go to California for the NAMM show. Yeah. And then, and then back home and just, you know, I'm used to looking at my calendar and having, you know, six to 10 gigs a month. Yeah. And I look at my calendar and I have, I have three in January and it's, you know, one bad influence, one new blue soul and one acoustic. Yeah. And, and that's it for, for 2021 so far. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it'll all turn around, you know, now that they now they got a vaccine and, you know, and stuff, it'll, some, something's going to shake. It's going to have to, you know, it's, it's like, it's just crazy. Exactly. exactly. So you give lessons uh, on the side now, or do you have a, do you have a day gig now that you're doing? I don't, I don't, um, I don't do lessons. I am, uh, I'm somewhat of a entrepreneurial kind of guy. I mean, I've been like yeah. that my whole life. So I actually own a couple businesses. Oh, okay. I, do, um, I have a business. I do silk screening, embroidery, um, you know, anything you with name on it. <laughs> anything you can market, huh? Exactly. Yeah. So, so luckily, you know, thank God for, for that, where it's kept me afloat. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's real good. Yeah, there's a lot of guys out there that don't have anything, you know. Right. I know. I mean, yeah. a lot of friends of mine and it's just, you know, they've been on the road for 40 years and 50 years and that's all they do. It's heartbreaking when you see them posting their gear on oh, yeah. places to sell and that, because you know that, you know, that the only reason they are is because of the situation that we're all in, you know, yeah, crazy. I, I know. And I've seen, you know, people it's, it's, you know, you go into the, the supermarket and you're like, Hey, um, aren't you uh so-and-so? Yeah. <laughs> you know, but you gotta do what you gotta do. Yeah. 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 Well, it'll all change, man. It will. I know. I know. I, Just, tell you I, what, I tell you what, I, I really appreciate uh, the time that you've given me, you know, I, I, I appreciate, you know, getting the chance to meet you and 
learn more about, you know, who you are and what you do. And that I know we're connected on social media and I see your posts and, you know, I've heard videos and, and stuff like that. And so this is kind of cool to put a, a face to yeah. a name. Absolutely. This is, and, and, you know, we'll hopefully we'll get to jam together sometime, you know, um, I, I plan to come back to Chicago. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, that'd be Absolutely. great. That, that'd be great. You know, one of the things that, you know, we're hoping to do uh, this year is to do some live, uh, some live broadcasts or some live, uh, you know, uh, film some interviews live, you know, at shows and stuff like that. Sure. Some I hate to call them rig rundowns, but you know I don't know something. So we're thinking. Of hey, look, we're, we're all nerds when it comes down to, it, and we like that kind of thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know what? If it wasn't for the, you know, if it wasn't for the pandemic, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be doing this. Right. You know, I had a radio show for a number of years, and I had a lot of fun with. It. Absolutely loved it. And uh, when the pandemic hit, and I was like a lot of other musicians. I had recorded an album, was going to release it in March. And uh, I had recorded it with Walter Trout's band and uh, you know, I didn't know what the hell I was going to do, you know, with the pandemic. And somebody says, well, you still like being on the radio. Why don't you, you know, do something. And so that's what the idea for this podcast came into play. And I would have never known that I would start it in July. And right now it's like, what we're in December and we've got around 200,000 listeners a week. Oh, it's, it's awesome. It's pretty cool. And I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm flattered that, you know, I'm like sandwiched between like Joe Satriani and, and John Five or something. And, you know, I'm going to, when you put that post up with the picture and the, you know, the date yeah. for fine, like you did, you know, like you do, I'm going to take that and I'm going to put fine the Joe Satriani one <laughs> and John Five one and, and all these heavyweights. And I'm going to be like, yeah, I actually did do that. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll make you one specific with all those guys on it. And cool. You right in the middle of it. That way, uh, that way you can do it. No, it is cool. You know what? It's like, I, I just like talking about, you know, music and I like talking about uh, playing and gear and stuff like that. And it doesn't matter. It's cool to talk to Joe Satriani, but it's also really cool to talk to guys like myself. You know what I mean? That yeah. you know, know how to make good music and have had some really cool experiences. And, you know, well, the thing is, too, um, you know, I have a friend who he's he's now that he's the artist relations manager for me at, at PV, who he's the guy who worked with Joe Satriani with at Ibanez, oh, yeah. you know, way back when. And, and he told me he's like, you know, there are everybody's just a, a regular guy. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, that's the one thing, you know, the radio show that I did before, it wasn't centered around guitars. It was, it was just, it was, uh, uh, it was an interview uh, show, but it, I had everybody, I had Jack Bruce and Randy Bachman. And I mean, it was people, Charlie Daniels, people from all different walks of music and that. And uh, so this time around, I wanted it to be guitar focused. And that's the one thing I've discovered is, is that, man everybody has been beyond cool oh yeah people that i don't know that i've never met before in that and i've made some tremendous friends as a result of this but at the same time i've gotten to bring light i think to some to some players and some bands that i think are really worth people paying attention to you yeah know what i mean 
And, uh, and so that's why I try to keep it as well-rounded. The only thing is it's so hard. You do one show like me. I, I really have enough shows recorded that I could go till probably July and not do another interview. And if I, that's if I just did one show a week. And so that's right. why I do a lot of special shows or I'll double them up or. But it's or, fun. Yeah. It's yeah. fun for me to do it and talk about, you know, talk about the stuff that I do and the, you know, the gear stuff for me is kind of special talking about it because, you know, I, I'm not the only guy who plugs a guitar into an amp. Right. But, but it's just, you know, I'm using a $500 guitar. I'm using a, you know, a lower price amp and it, it's, I sound like me. Right. You know what I mean? And, and talk, it, just telling people, you know, Hey, you don't need to do this or this. It's just, just play the guitar, just have fun. Right. And you know, you know, that, that, that smile that you get when the amp is just perfect yeah. and you hit that note and you're like, okay, I'm going to stop now. Yeah. <laughs> You might not be the only guy plugging a guitar into an amp, but I guarantee you're probably one of a few that are plugging a casino into a quilter. Yeah, probably. <laughs> probably. And, 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 being, and being endorsed by both of them. You know, that's, that uh, could be. you know, you're probably the only one there. Well, Michael, I appreciate it. I do, buddy. I appreciate it, Jimmy. Thanks for the time, man. Thanks for doing this. And thanks for, uh, you know, educating and sharing all of us with everybody else. Well, all right. So there you go. Uh, Michael Tash from Bad Influence all the way from the Washington, D.C. area. Extremely nice guy. Really good player. Great band. If you're out that way, you definitely want to go check them out. I know they play all over that region, so uh, there's probably plenty of places to see them once everything is 100% open again. (laughs) <laughs> I know they're playing. I, I see uh, I see uh, posts on social media, you know, some things that they're doing now. So that's that's cool. So support them. Uh, let's see. Their website is badinfluenceband.com. So uh, thanks to Michael for participating in this episode. I really appreciate it, brother. Now, next Wednesday, we got, uh, wow, a tremendous blues master you know, I don't know how else to word it. And probably one of the most nicest guys in the world that you could ever meet. And I'm talking about Kirk Fletcher. That's right. Kirk Fletcher is with me next week. I tell you, when I talk to guitar players all over the world, this is a player that people pay attention to. You know, it's like he is a player's player. You know, all the guys, especially the blues guys, you know, are all paying attention to Kurt Fletcher in that because he's just a well-rounded player. And I, that's no take on your belly there, uh, Kurt. <laughs> yeah, I'm talking about your plan. All right, so I don't want nobody to think I just called Kurt a big guy in that because, you know, he's a big guy, but, you know. He's a big, nice guy. So I can't wait to have him on. You're really going to enjoy this. I I really think so. So, hey, do this right here. Follow me on Facebook, Jimmy Warren Radio. That's where you want to go on Facebook. Also on Instagram and Twitter, you can just catch me, Jimmy Warren. And then go to Jimmy Warren. Well, you can go to Jimmy Warren Official, too. Check out what I'm doing. I got some dates coming up. 
you know, as a matter of fact, the 19th of this month, I'm at 12 Bar Lounge in Peoria, Illinois. So if you're in that region and you want to come out, you know, come on down. It's going to be a great night. You can check my calendar out uh, on there, and you can see we're going to be touring uh, throughout the Midwest at the end of summer and into the fall. Hopefully, you know, fingers crossed, everything's still going to be going. It's going to be a great time. And I got dates across uh, Illinois and Indiana throughout the entire summer. So, you know, just check the website. And then go to guitartalkofficial.com, subscribe to our website so that you can get updates on things that are going to be happening. Check out Guitar Talk TV, read our CD reviews, check out our gear page, see who's the spotlighted guitarist. And hey, get yourself a Guitar Talk t-shirt. You can get it right there at Guitar Talk Official. Okay, everybody, I look forward to being with you on Wednesday, the 17th, with my guest Kurt Fletcher on Guitar Talk with Jimmy Warren. Until then, everybody stay safe and, you know, pick up the guitar, play a little guitar, man. That's what you got to do. Till next time.